nothing that they're doing, no God that they're appealing to so far has helped. by now it goes like this Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall come on everybody Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again I've lost my mind haven't I <laughs> it's claimed that the Humpty Dumpty was a story about a certain political situation in England it's also a parable about man. Consider this just for a moment. Man has had a great fall. The evidence is the havoc in all our lives. And we are all helpless to put ourselves back together again. But there is someone who can. It's Jesus. The one who can take the shattered, scattered fragments of your life and put them back together again. You are not yet a Christian, it is Jesus who can forgive your sins and create you anew. If you are a Christian, but your life is in disarray, He will restore things to order. The choice. Point one idols do not save. Point two self effort does not save. As we just read the Lord's declaration in Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Would you read that last point with me nice and loud this morning? Point number three, ready? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, one more time, let Pennsylvania hear it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. One more time, shake the clouds. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Amen. So God revealed by Lot... That this storm is because of whom? It's because of Jonah. The storm that they are in right now, we find ourselves in the middle of in this story, is because of Jonah. God revealed by confession of the truth of God's answer, his identity, Jonah's true identity. And now the pagan sailors are given a choice. How should they respond to the truth that they now know? 
How do we respond to truth that becomes evident to us? That's the choice the sailors have at this point. What do we do with what we know that we might be saved? What do we do with what we know, not what we think, what we feel, what may or may not be? What do we do with the facts we know that we might be saved? This is what is before them this morning. Two words that are very, very important to our Christian lives are so powerful. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. The message that Jesus preached as he went about, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. These are two of the most powerful words in the Christian vocabulary. They are words we should not only know, they are words we should live by. Our daily practice should be an ongoing gospel presentation, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Ravi Zacharias says, only through repentance and faith in Christ can anyone be saved. He goes on to say, no religious activity will be sufficient. Only true faith in Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever considered how simple a message the gospel truly is? And how much we as the church continue to muddy it up? All of our religiosity and our worldly presuppositions. We build doctrines. We do this all the time. We build doctrines to the point that we are pointing toward the gospel rather than starting with the gospel. So rather than starting with the gospel as our foundation for understanding the scriptures, usually we're going to the scriptures and trying to piece work together how they toward the gospel, and it's the wrong way. This current series that we're in, I don't know if anyone's uh, realized, recognized maybe that through your own reading, uh, you really have no idea what I'm going to say next. You have no idea what the sermon's going to be about. Because what I've been doing this entire time is starting with the gospel and then going into Jonah with the gospel and looking and seeing how Jonah builds upon the gospel message or how it points to, leads us from this gospel message. So we start with this message of belief and repentance and then we look at the rest of the Bible through this gospel lens and in it we see Jesus all over the place. And that is the aim here. We move away from the beautiful message of redemption and grace and responding by faith and repentance and often we begin to try to force the Bible to point toward the message and really all you got to do is read the Bible and you cannot help but see where the gospel is penetrated throughout the entire word. Amen? However, often we find ourselves through the, the heretical masses of modern thought Uh, Matt Chandler says, The spiritual power in the gospel is denied when we augment our adjusting gospel into no gospel at all. Uh, Let me say that one more time just so we can all feel the weight of it. He uses some, it's pretty wordy with what he says. The spiritual power in the gospel is denied when we augment our adjusting gospel into no gospel at all. When we doubt the message alone is the power of God for salvation we start adding or subtracting, trusting our own powers of persuasion. 
or presentation. Bottom line, we force things to fit and then attempt to force others to agree. We force things to fit and then attempt to force others to agree. And the gospel in that becomes just another philosophy. It's powerless after being stripped and broken down by the hands of those entrusted to take it to the end of the earth. What we need to recognize every single time we come to the gospel, really every single time you step out your door, is humanity is broken. It's broken. Just a survey of current events. Regardless of your worldview, my worldview, the worldview of those outside the church, is that something is wrong. Something is not right with the way that things are. And the Bible tells us that that wrong that we feel is an accurate observation. Things should feel out of place. Why? Because humanity has fallen into a deep depravity because of the fall in Eden. And now, everything is broken and everyone wants peace. Everyone wants to be in a place of peace. And the Bible tells us that God has made a way for peace through His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we get it? To what mountain are we supposed to ascend that we can attain this peace? What pattern of thought do we have to conform to to get there? What do we have to do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe. Repent and believe. The Bible tells us that to be saved, we are to repent and believe. So there are questions out there. What about communion? What about baptism? Uh, What about confessions of faith? What about memorizing the Ten Commandments? What about good deeds? What about simply being a good person? Aren't those things included in the path to salvation? And all God's people say, no. Uh, One more time, all God's people say, no. These methods are, are a clear demonstration of how far depraved we actually are when you're talking to someone and they're telling you about their list of good deeds that they've done as if that's going to earn them something with God. C.S. Lewis said, Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for to make them worth it. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I know I'm repeating a lot of stuff. I, I want everyone to hear this. And I'm, I'm just praying that it, that it hits home like, like it has for me. Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for. To make them worth it. You will find and I will find no passage that teaches salvation apart from faith. And neither faith nor repentance are a work. They are postures. It's the place where we stand. Not leaning on ourselves and our works and our goodness and our bank account. But we stand and lean on Christ. We believe in Him. Our faith is in Him. And it's because of Him that we continue to go forward and to repent and turn from sin daily. Moment by moment. So... I'm asking everyone this morning to follow me into this passage and let's look at this through this gospel lens that you cannot save yourself, that you and I don't have the power within us to save ourselves and anything that we put our faith in outside of Christ is going to fail. 
Three points to the sermon today. Idols do not save. Self-effort does not save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. First up, idols do not save. This is where I have to backtrack just a hair. Because remember, early on in this voyage, when the men head out, the storm comes upon them. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. When the storm arises, the mariners realize it, and they realize that there is a divine hand at work. How do we know that? Because immediately they start trying for self-preservation. Let's lighten the load and see what can happen, and it's still not helping them. Next thing they do after they realize they can't save themselves by their efforts is go to their gods, go to their idols. They take turns calling out to their false gods in hopes that one of them will work. A good illustration of this is, uh, remember when we were trying to get the candle lit during the Seder, and we keep on going to another match, and another match, and another match, just hoping that one of them are finally going to work? This is what these guys are doing. This God, this guy, they're calling out to their different idols. They do not work. We know that. We've read it. They desperately want to be saved. And when they've done all they could do in their strength, they turn to idols. And you and I are no different. Even as Christians, we will turn to all sorts of things that we've allowed to become God in our lives to replace God. And we go to these things, it's silly, thinking that somehow they have the power to save us. Our money, our cliques, fill in the blank. We all turn to idols at some point. It's in our nature to to run. Uh, That's the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, maybe I have enough here, and maybe I can do this, and maybe we can take care of this, and maybe if we just focus on this one, you can fill in the blank. And you may say, well, the idols were all these mariners knew. And I I think that's a fair and and accurate uh, observation. That's all they knew. Who else could they call out to? Who else could they cry out to? Their idols, and yours and mine, prove only to be idols in the midst of a storm. Storms sort out our thoughts in the midst of of chaos. Think for just a moment. If it wasn't for that storm that came, and it wasn't for you turning to that idol, you would never have known that it did not have the power to save you. God allows these things to come to our lives so that He can continue to melt away the dross and bring forth pure gold. You and I will turn to idols in the storm. And when we find they cannot save, then that helps us to make a distinction between what is false, our idols, and what is true, Jehovah. When you and I are in the midst of a storm, when we have hard things come into our lives... It proves to us first who our God really is. And second, when that God cannot save, it proves to us in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, who the one true Jehovah is. Storms bring clarity in a world full of idols. And they won't save you. 
Did their idols save them, everyone? No. Do your idols and my idols, do they ever save us? No, we always end up on our knees. Always end up on our knees. Your job, your savings, your reputation, the things that we've worked so hard to build, they won't save. They can't save. Self-effort does not save. I will tell you this. Of all of us in here, I think that this is going to be the one that all of us struggle with the most. Because we think that somehow, some way, we can make our lives work and we can fix things ourselves. Because I know every single person in here is a go-getter. I know you all. You're all go-getters. I'm a go-getter. We think we can just go and take care of things ourselves. And I want to just offer a precursor here so there's no misunderstanding. Because typically when you say something like this, this can be mistaken and, and misunderstood. And I want to make sure there's absolute clarity here. This does not mean that people who are saved put forth no effort. Amen? People who are saved do put forth effort. In just a few weeks, we're going to start studying James, and we're going to learn explicitly over and over again that effort does not save. But there is a difference. Practicing good works does not save. But people who are saved practice good works. It's the overflow of salvation. It's what you do not to be saved, but what you do because you are saved, because you've been made free from your sinful self to do good works. So the mariners get the truth from Jonah in verse 11. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Look at their response. What should we do? What's he say? He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know. He doesn't say I think. He doesn't say I feel. Those are abandoned now. Have you noticed in our culture today that it's so much easier for us to emote? It's so much easier for us to feel and think than actually stand on what we know? Look at what he says here. There is absolute clarity in what he says. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He gives them truth to stand on right there. He gives them truth to stand on. What should we do? Toss me in. What do they do? Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So in the beginning of this narrative, we already read that the sea was so tempestuous at this time, it threatened to break apart the ship. And notice that as we progress in the story, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Nothing that they're doing, no God that they're appealing to so far, has helped. Nothing. Spurgeon says, The greatest enemy to the human soul is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves 
for salvation. They think that somehow, some way, they can row hard enough to get out of this thing. They think that they can. And they find out very quickly they can't. We can't do enough stuff to earn salvation. We cannot be saved by our self-effort. You can have a long list of people that you've pushed out from in front of moving vehicles, of donations that you've made to Catholic Charities, the Food Bank of America, even to your church. You can have a long list of all the good things that you've done and society may look on you and decide that after you perish, you deserve some sort of reward. But these acts done to earn grace, done to earn salvation from God, gain you, gain I, absolutely nothing. Our efforts will not save us. Some people, actually I would say many people believe that if there is a God, surely he will look on my good life and judge me according to that. I mean, just believe? That doesn't even make any sense. If he saw how hard I was trying. I hear so many people tell me that God is going to judge them according to whether or not they're a good person. And by all standards and measures of the culture we live in, they are good people, but that's not how God's going to judge them. It simply isn't true. The whole of our good efforts to get us into heaven is a lie that comes from Satan. It's where Satan manipulates the gospel and makes us believe that if we do certain things that we'll be able to earn something with God. There are denominations that are built upon this theory that you can do something to get God, do something to gain God, do something to get grace. And that is against what Scripture teaches us. Can you do enough? All guys, people said, no. Let's look at a real-life example. A real life of someone that actually lived and someone that actually thought that this could be true. Let's just look at his life. Remember this, Luke 18, 18-23? And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to be saved. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, now, before we go on, Jesus knows what the man is asking. Jesus knows the man's heart. So the statements that he says are are bringing truth into the man's scope so he can make a decision based on truth. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Effectually, Jesus says, no one's good but God. And the young ruler says, me too. Everyone see that? Me too. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Does everyone see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is asking two things of this man. Just two things. The same two things that he asks of you. The same two things that he asks of First and foremost, he's asking him to repent. 
This man is extremely rich. We know that this is a heart issue for him because Jesus always goes for the heart. This is what Jesus is addressing. By all standards, many people may believe that this is a good guy, a good guy to go into heaven. Jesus asks him to repent. He's heading in one direction. One thing, you still lack. Sell all that you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he asks him to do one more thing. Follow me. Jesus asks not only for repentance, Jesus asks for a full commitment. A full commitment that his faith is going to be completely in following Jesus Christ. Therefore they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not innocent blood on us, innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Last point. Salvation belongs to the Lord. These are five freeing words for us Christians. Let's say them together, loud and proud. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Wow. Our efforts equal nothing. Nothing. So what do they do? They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Pay attention to what's happening here. This is so important. It is only in their surrender to God that they find the path to repentance. Because they're trying things one way. They're doing things one way. And God requires for them to turn and do it His way. And every time we are doing things one way, and God is not calling us to veer a little to the left or veer to the right. God is calling us to make a 180 and to change the way we're doing things. To turn away from where we're headed and turn to Him. To His Word and to His will. What do they do? They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Wow. It is only by the mariner's surrender that they find the path to repentance, and it is only by our surrender that we find the path to repentance. It is only by our surrender. When the mariners realize their hope lies outside of their idols, outside of their self-effort, and that to accept the path of surrender, even though it seems like it won't work, that's the path they choose. How many times has God been calling or asking you to do something? You're reading His Word, you're reading about this and that, and the same passage keeps flaring up in front of you again and again. And you don't obey because you think that it's not going to work. Sometimes we avoid obeying God's word because we think it is not going to work in the situation. And at that point, we've taken the power of God and said, we are more powerful than you, and we've set it aside. This is so, so beautiful, what continues to happen here. The mariners realize their hope lies outside of their idols and self-effort, and they need to accept the path of submission. And they do. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, And the sea ceased from its raging. It was not by their own ideals that they were saved. 
by the hand of Almighty God. Salvation comes to these men. So, one more thing. This, this is the most beautiful part of this entire passage. What's more, we see not only evidence of belief, we see not only evidence of repentance, watch this, we see evidence of regeneration. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We see evidence of conversion. Notice to whom they make their vows and sacrifices now. Notice to whom they have accepted as the one true God. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. Their posture toward the Lord changed dramatically that day. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God turns not only... Look at this. God turns not only the storm into calm, he changes, he turns the idolatrous heart away from idols and to himself. Is that amazing? Absolutely amazing. They are now worshipers of Jehovah. It is, it's not idols that save us. It's not our self-efforts that, that save us. You and I spend most of our days seeking these things and we're exhausted We're absolutely and completely exhausted by seeking to to make these things work in our lives. And that isn't how we were meant to live. God didn't design you to carry such a burden on your shoulders. So whether or not you're a believer, it really doesn't matter. He calls you to himself. You're not supposed to bear that burden. As a matter of fact, just as, as, we're, as we're closing here, I want everyone to just consider the words of Christ. The precious relief that he offers us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is talking to a group of people who have exhausted themselves trying to keep up with the law, trying to be good enough. He says, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You understand, no matter where you are in this world, you are carrying a yoke on your shoulders. It's either the yoke of Christ Or it's the yoke of sin. It's the yoke of the world. It's the yoke of the devil. One or the other. There's no in-between. And I tell you that we carry this yoke for our entire lives. But Christ carried the yoke of sin, the yoke of Satan, to Calvary, where he died on the cross, that you and I might experience this sweet relief in carrying the yoke of Christ rather than the yoke of sin. Rather than the yoke of desperation, rather than the yoke of good works. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the hymn say? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I 
to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Are you worn out this morning? Are you exhausted from trying to gain respect for yourself, from yourself, from your peers, from those who are around you, even respect from God? You and I were never meant to bear that yoke. Ever. Christ has come and asked us to cast that off. Just cast your cares. Cast down your cares. Cast off that yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Cast it off and come to Christ. Let's pray. And we're going to sing a couple songs together. Father, give us understanding of our inability to save ourselves. And a clear path to repentance from self-effort and from idolatry. Help us to trust in no other name but the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by whose stripes we are healed, by whose blood we are cleansed, by whose name we are saved, and in whose image we are now called to walk. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' precious name. All the people said.